I was at Cedar Springs so long that I took liberties and the, the music team just got used to forgiving me for it. But sometimes, often, as here, uh, the offertory was just too good not to join in. So suddenly I'd spring up from the front and stand and say, sing with them, sing with them. Um, I may do that sometime. That's just a little warning. We don't want any, any heart attacks out there. Our first lesson is taken from 2 Chronicles 33. And I'm just going to read a few verses. We're going to be looking, as I said, at Psalm 103, but uh, there are so many, so many aspects to Psalm 103, so many windows into the teaching of Scripture and the things that we should be celebrating. And I find the story of Manasseh incredibly encouraging because Manasseh is generally acknowledged to have been the absolute worst, most horrible, wicked king in the entire history of Israel and Judah. Why would I find him encouraging? Uh, I'm reading from 2 Chronicles 33, first, the first two verses first. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Having all power as a 12-year-old. And he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And then it describes some of the things he did. Look down at verse 9. Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. And it goes on to describe how he cleaned all of the idols out of the temple and restored the worship of the Lord. That's why I find his story so incredibly encouraging. Our New Testament lesson is taken from Romans 8, another theme that is dealt with in Psalm 103. Beginning with verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And then down in verse 12, so then brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. 
For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And now Psalm 103. Those of you who may be looking for scriptures to memorize, this is a wonderful one to get into your heart and mind. It will, it will come to mind. It will uh, be used of the Lord as, as we increase his vocabulary in our hearts and minds. He then is able to trigger these things that we've learned and bring them to mind. And this is one of my very favorite psalms. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. And fear, as I was reminded by one of our brothers this morning, when you read the fear of God in the scripture, it means it in the sense of awe. It is not a, a slavish fear, it's rather recognizing that you are in God's presence. So it's speaking of awe. Steadfast love, verse 11, how great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it's gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments." The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. 
Bless the Lord all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. May God help us to understand, to embrace, to inhabit this, his word. So I want to talk to you this morning about not just worship, but worship as a way of life and life as an exercise in worship. Really four things that, or five, that, that I want us to see here. There's so much more you could preach. If I were Martin Lloyd-Jones, this would be probably 14, 15 years worth of text to preach. But I'm not, so don't be afraid. We're gonna cover it this morning. But I want us particularly to note he begins with an inward look, and we'll look at that in a moment in verse 1, and then he will end in verses 20 through 22 with an outward look, all of it, and then he'll finally, in the last word, close the loop and come back, begins and ends with, bless the Lord, O my soul. And between those two calls, he calls us to look first at what God has done that's basically verses 2 through 8. And then he calls us to look at who God is. And he reminds us that these incredible things that God has done for us are not some strange and alien work that he did because Jesus died for us. This is an expression of who he is. So he goes from what he's done from the manifestation in redemptive history and in our own stories to saying, do you get it yet? Do you see who he is? Do you, are you beginning to grasp what God is actually like? And then in the light of that, he turns and says, do we understand who we are? And then he goes back to the call to worship. So that's the movement that I see in this psalm. There's so much more, but that's how I'm going to try to get us to look at it this morning. Remember, I don't say this because I'm humble, <laughs> I'm too proud. When I am humble, I am what Winston Churchill once described as a humble man with much to be humble about. Um, <laughs> but I'm preaching to myself. And so if perhaps at points you're not connecting and I seem rather more impassioned in this, it's because I need to preach this to my own heart. The first verse he opens with this incredible call. Those of us who've grown up in Christian circles or in the church or read the Bible, too often, I think, are not arrested by this. We read, bless the Lord, O my soul. And what we hear is just a call to praise the Lord. It is a call to praise the Lord, but it's something more. Blessing in the Bible is to bring joy to someone, to do good for someone. We're, we're used to seeking God to bless us, but I mean, if you hear it that way, you think, bless the Lord. How in the world can I bless God? How can I bring joy to him? How can I, in some way, delight God's heart? And he says, this, this is how you do it. And it begins by not just blessing him when we're together, being so well led by David and the teams that lead us. This becomes our joyful ability to, to bring it all together 
but it's what we are doing every day in every experience. We are learning to bless the Lord, oh my soul, and here's the operative phrase, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Now, what does that mean? There are parts of me that I find it very easy to employ in the service of God's praise. I, I delight in using whatever thinking gift and speaking gift God has given me in declaring what I believe to be true about him to other people. But every worship word in Scripture, in both Hebrew and Greek, describes some physical act of worship, whether bowing or prostrating oneself on the ground or standing with hands uplifted. Every worship word in the Bible describes the body acting in worship. So, I became a Presbyterian. My younger brother became a Baptist, but an unusual Baptist, a Baptist who had had a profound encounter with the Holy Spirit that turned him into one of the most joyful and physically bodacious worshipers uh, I've ever seen. Now, he doesn't get up and dance around. He's dignified. You know, he is, he is a wood, but... I mean, he's praising the Lord. And we were worshiping together once, and he's worshiping, and it was so moving to me, the time of worship, that I almost turned my palms up in my lap. <laughs> and, um, and Jim was laughing afterward at my restraint because he could tell my joy in the way that I was singing. And I said, well, Jim, you know, we're all wired differently. You know, you're expressive like that. I'm not. And he said, John, I grew up with you. I've seen you at football games. <laughs> and it got me thinking. When we go to a stadium and see a game of any sort, what do you see the fans doing if it's a great moment in the game? They are on their feet, their hands are up, they're shouting, they're pointing, they're extolling what they just, it's postures of worship. And at times, postures of despairing worship. <laughs> you know? But it's, it's, we exhibit it and nobody says, well, must not be a Presbyterian, a bunch of Pentecostals here. No, everybody's <laughs> like that, every one of us. If you, if you go to a rock concert or just sometime if you're on television and there's a, a, a really bodacious rock concert going on, just turn off the sound and watch. What do you see? Postures of worship. Why? Because God made us for worship. God designed us to worship heart and mind and strength. He made us for that. And we we give it so much more easily to all of the exciting things that we enjoy than we do to him, at least I do. 
If I were on the back row with the music from here, I'd have my hands up, but I'm down front. I'm Presbyterian pastor. I'm a little embarrassed. I'm kind of getting them up to here, but thinking I'm not offending anybody. But I mean, what's he saying? He is saying, all that should go out the window. If we are God's people, we should be cheering him on in all of his acts. We should be delighting. We should be rejoicing. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. And I want, before I die, to get a little more freed up. I promise I won't dance the aisles or embarrass you. But because I believe that that brings joy to the Father, I think he delights when we just say, This is not about me and my hang-ups and my own self-consciousness. This is about the one who loved me and made me, and when I ran from him and spit in his face, he found me and drew me back and redeemed me and made me his child. And I will worship and delight in him as long as I have breath, as preparation for the big one. (laughs) When I'm finally with him, I don't think there'll be any little quiet you know, worship in heaven. That's certainly not what we see in the scenes that we're given, much less in the new heavens, the new earth, when we get our bodies back. Okay. Bless the Lord, O my soul. All that is within me, bless his holy name. Now, how do I do that? Why am I, why am I blessing him? What does it mean? What does Paul mean when in 2 Corinthians uh, he he says, we with unveiled faces, not like Moses who, who beheld God's glory and then had to cover his face so the people didn't see it while it was fading away, but we with unveiled faces are gazing at God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. How do we do that? We can do it right here in this psalm because we know what this psalm was pointing toward. They had types and shadows. They didn't see it in its fullness. We know now. We know the story of Jesus. We know how these things were fulfilled and brought to pass. And so he begins by telling us what God has done. He says, who forgives all your, and he uses, the translation is iniquities rather than just sins. Well, what's the difference? I mean, sin is the comprehensive category. But iniquity has a special drive at the utter horrible injustice that we've committed to one another and the more grotesque aspects of our sins. I mean, some of my sins, I'm absolutely happy to stand up here and to confess to you, oh, pride and arrogance and all that. But, you know, my, I have a veneer of openness, but the reality is, I don't want anybody, the Lord knows, but I don't want anybody to know some of the struggles of my heart. And what he is saying is, he who knows us best loves us most because his son who knew no sin became for us a sin offering, an atoning sacrifice that we might become the righteousness of God. This wonder of wonders fulfilled in Christ. He has forgiven us 
all our iniquities. He's healed all our diseases, he says. Well, there you may go. Well, wait a minute. I've been praying about this thing or my child or my... We've been praying for years on this and we don't see every time God healed you and me, whether through penicillin or surgery or just every time God healed us, brought us to health, and will do so until our sickness unto death, which will bring us at last to him, and then he will raise us up new in glorified bodies when the story of this world in its present form is over. He is healing, shall heal at last every broken place in every one of our lives. He heals all of our diseases. And it's, let me tell one story. Um, Went through a season at Cedar Springs where we really said, you know, we talk about being a church that believes the Bible, but we don't do everything the Bible says. And of course, I I was not eager to get into this because I always like everything to be safe where we can talk about what God's doing without having to have a demonstration of it. so one of our guys on staff said, we ought to be having regular services where those that are sick can come and we can anoint them and pray for them. Well, I said, we do that. We go, yeah, but we ought to have services so that people can be encouraged. And I'm thinking, oh boy, you know, I've been there. So, um, so anyway, we did. And a lot of people came. We prayed for a lot of people. But of course, the one who came to me was a young man who'd grown up in the church, had served on staff, and then had been called to mission. He was a young athlete, dynamic guy, and he had developed a palsy in the side of his face so that his face was drooped down, he could hardly speak. And so, of course, he's the one who comes to me for anointing. Everybody can see, you know, whether or not. So, so I said, we're just going to trust the Lord. And I'm Of course, everything we're praying, Lord, according to your will, you may have a sanctifying purpose. But nonetheless, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm outwardly doing all the right things, but inwardly I'm going, you know, you put me in this position. I'm trying to be obedient to your word. Please, we could use a little help down here. You know, (laughs) how how about just a little something? And I anointed him with oil, prayed for him. And he said, praise the Lord, turn around, walk back, and his face was still dead. And I just thought, thanks a lot. How did I let myself get into it? Why did I agree to do this? You know. The next morning, he called. He had flown back, and he called. And he, he was totally normal. He said, you're not going to believe it. While I was flying back, the Lord healed my face. I said, send pictures, please. <laughs> But I mean, God is sovereign. God will do what he will do on his time. Sometimes the sicknesses that we struggle with, he is sanctifying us through it. He's teaching us to walk by faith, not by sight. But nonetheless, if we are his, his aim at last or perhaps now is to heal. Who redeems your life from the pit. What does that mean? It means that you and I Don't have to be afraid of death. For us, death will not have the final word. There's nothing, I mean, there's a natural fear that we have of non-being because 
we haven't talked to anybody who died and came back and described it to us, you know? So going into the unknown. But to me, one of the most beautiful things has been to see Christians face death with such courage and beauty and peace, a peace that in some of their cases I'd never seen in, when they were healthy and well, but now God had met them and had just given them the peace. I'll never forget as we stood around my dad and sang Amazing Grace as, as he was dying and my mother kissed him and said, thank you for being such a wonderful husband. And we sang him into glory. And I looked around at my children and at my family and realized that seeing a Christian die well was robbing death of any power to frighten us. Because you know? <laughs> those of us that were in the service sometimes saw people not die well. But for us, he has brought us up from the pit and he has crowned us with steadfast love, his chesed. That is now our possession. God has put on us his great love, as we'll see more of in just a moment. Do you walk that way? Do you realize that? As you walk through life and sometimes realize your inadequacies or all of us fail at things, if we don't sometimes fail, we're not doing enough. We're not, we're not trying to do enough. But as you walk through it, do you let this world define you or do you realize that your, your father, the great God, has crowned you even now with steadfast love and compassion? That's what he's given you. And then this, this last beautiful line of, of what he's done for us. He says that he satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. I mean, you just see an eagle mount up here. Some of us are getting pretty old here. Now, I love this congregation because I'm not nearly the oldest one. We've got, I'm, I'm going to, whenever I go back, Whenever I go back to Knoxville, I'm taking water from up here because I've never met so many dynamic, healthy, joyful, still ministering people in their 90s. It's just incredible. You want to know what it means to have your youth renewed so the, like that of the eagle. Spend a little time with Graham Gucci. Spend a little time with Jim Ferguson. You just spend time with them and see, really, this is, this is God's work. There's a freshness and a beauty even as we're growing old. I'm growing old. But this is what God is doing. This is just a quick summary he gives. And then he goes on and speaks of, real quickly, he says, he works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. And then he starts on, this is a reflection of who God is. Do you understand that he is doing this because he is a God of compassion? I love, I forget which chapter in Isaiah it is. I'm sorry, I should remember. But Isaiah says, speaking of God's judgment of the wicked, he says it is God's strange, God's alien work. God will work justice. And those of us, 
you know, people, there, there's this contradictory critique of biblical religion that's self-contradictory. It goes like this. I don't know how in the world you could believe in a good God in a world where there's so much suffering and evil and where bad people just die in their beds and go on. How can you believe in a God like that? And a minute later, they're saying, how can you believe in judgment? How can you believe in a God who would judge? Well, you just asked that somebody deal with this guy who died in his bed. You know, and got it. nobody gets away with anything. God shows justice for the oppressed. God deals with sin and brokenness, but he has dealt decisively with it in his son. And so he describes him, just listen to these words. Verse 10, he does, well, verse 9, he will not always chide. Parents, parents remember, our heavenly father does not always chide. You correct a child, they say, I'm sorry. Let it go. Don't just keep it up because they're going to form their first views of God through the way that you behave as a parent. God tells us we respond, he does not chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Why? How? Because from the foundation of the earth, he knew what he was going to do. He knew that the lamb from eternity would be given in our place. I love that moment in Revelation when, remember when the scroll is revealed, it's in the hand of God that represents God's will and it's sealed with seven seals. And they say, who is there that's worthy to take the scroll and open its seals? And no one is found, no one worthy to do God's will. And so John begins to weep and then an angel says to him, don't weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the conquering lion, he's going to rip that thing open. And John wipes his tears and looks up to see this conquering lion expecting Aslan to rise up and roar. And instead, he sees a lamb slain. The most powerful thing in all this universe is self-sacrificial love because that's how God ordained it to be. And he gave himself so that he might not chide or keep his anger forever. And then this, just as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him, again, who are in awe of him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Brothers and sisters, if you have confessed your sins to God and turned away, don't go back and dig them back up and look at them and, and ask him over and over and over again what he's already done for you. He's put it as far away as the east is from the west. He has said, it's dealt with. Christ paid for it. It is over. I have forgiven you. Don't. Now, forgive yourself. John Stott used to say, if you've confessed your sins to the Lord and you're still consumed with guilt, either you have too high a view of your sins or too low a view of Christ's atonement and God's grace. It's over. It is done. I don't care what you've done. I don't care who you are. I don't care how ashamed you've been of it. 
And boy, if you and I were honest, we could go out somewhere and swap stories. <laughs> Except I don't want to go back there and remember any of that because Christ has dealt with it forever and the Father has said, it's in the depths of the sea, I remember it no more. And then this to me so beautiful, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame, he remembers we're dust. Yesterday morning, I was listening, I'm, I'm half Norwegian, so, and I love old choral music, and I was listening to this recording of St. Olaf's choir singing some, I'm, I know it's not Christmas, and I'm, we're not the Advent, and I, I like to keep it, but it, I was listening. So, and there was a cradle song. It was being sung in the Nidaros Cathedral there in Trondheim. And I was so stirred with this beautiful cradle song being sung to the Christ, but it took me back. I was amazed that I was able to remember bringing each of our children home and the way that Marianne had so beautifully decorated and prepared their rooms and remembered laying them down in the cradle with wonder, just thinking, I can't believe we get to keep <laughs> this beautiful little creature. Of course, God makes them teenagers, so we're ready to let them go. <laughs> but at that point, this beauty, and I immediately, I immediately texted all three of my children and just said, you were your mother's greatest treasure, and you will always be mine. And I thought of this. It's because our Father in heaven loves us like this. I also love the fact that Paul also says, as a mother, <laughs> it's, we also get the mother love of our Father God. But this is what he's describing. I could, you, get, you get the picture. No need to burden it anymore. But then he just says, remember who we are, the second half of verse 14. He remembers that we're dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind passes over it, and it's gone. Its place knows it no more. My goodness, at 74, I look in the mirror, and I realize it's, I, the, the, the petals are off the flower. It's, you know, whatever, whatever was there ain't there no more. And, and I think all of the universe knows because I'm only on um, Instagram to see my kids and grandkids. I don't, you know, I just want to see them. But somebody must have told someone on Instagram about me because all that I get on these pop-ups are, do you have bags under your eyes? Do you, <laughs> do you have lines in your face? You know, do you have turkey neck? Well, that's why, you know, that's why I wear this for Pete's sake. Yeah, old men grow these to hide the turkey. My point is, you don't have to live very long to realize that we're just, we're steaming through here. And the oldest lives, I remember Billy Graham saying when he turned 90, he was asked, what's the biggest surprise to you in your 90 years? And he said, I can't believe it went by so fast. I can't believe that it's almost over. And yet our hope is eternal because we've been redeemed. We've been brought up from the pit. We've been crowned with glory and honor. And so our destiny is secured. This is not the last word. 
So, he ends, he began by saying, look inward. Bring it all to him. Worship him with every fiber of your being. I love that he now at the end turns by saying, not just you, but let everything in the cosmos worship him. See how he does it? He goes from inward to outward. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. All of our life is in preparation for the moment that it lasts. All of this falls away, and we're with him. But even then, that's the intermediate stage. That's where those that we love are now. All pain, all suffering, everything's gone. With spiritual eyes, they are seeing Jesus. But not yet with glorified physical eyes. They've not yet been glorified. It awaits all of us together. Only Jesus has been resurrected. Only he is in that glorified body, and in him we will forever see the Lord in his beauty with eyes glorified, become one with the spiritual eye, and that will be joy unspeakable and full of glory. Father, thank you so much for what you've prepared for us. My words are insufficient to begin to declare it, but Lord, may we inhabit it. May this psalm get into us, and may we get into it, even as you by your Spirit are in us and we are made members of Christ. And I pray that you won't let us just have little views of salvation, that we're just trucking along down here as best we can and hoping that we're forgiven. You've made us new. You've set us on a path of life. And may we live as sons and daughters of the living God who have been crowned with glory and honor and all of your steadfast love and compassion. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand up.